Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another edition of Tent Theology. My name is Stephen Backhouse, and I am the host of this podcast, and I'm also a political theologian. Before we get into today's episode, I thought that I would briefly explain to you what it is you're about to listen to. A few months ago, during lockdown, I wanted to find a way to stay in touch with my subject and also my clients and my colleagues. Normally in my life, I am a freelance theologian, so churches or groups or networks hire me to help them think Christianly about what it is they're doing and how they organize themselves. And also they get me in to do teaching, and I often teach from the Bible. So one of the things that I did during lockdown was I sat down and recorded a series on the Gospel of Mark, and I made it available to subscribers, people that I already knew from my life as a traveling theologian. And this series was really fun to do, but it was also quite popular. And in fact, it led to the beginning of this podcast, because people started asking me for ways to make the stuff I was doing more easily accessible than simply having to sign up to be a subscriber to my website which is why we began the podcast that we did. But now that we've been going for a couple of months, we thought that it might be fun to re-release this Mark Bible study, re-release the material that started the whole thing. But I'm also aware that not everybody wants to lock in to the Gospel of Mark for 16, 20, I can't even remember how many episodes it is. I think it's about 20 episodes that it takes to get through the entire Gospel chapter by chapter, line by line, and do a political theological reading of the whole thing. And I know that not everybody wants that. That's not what you signed on for. So what we're going to do is we're just going to release the first four episodes of the Mark series, and then we'll put the rest onto the Patreon page. So if people want more, you can subscribe for as little as $5 or £5 a month, and you'll get access to all the studies. I'll release one a week on the Patreon page, as well as anything extra that we decide to release. And of course, we'll keep this podcast going all the time. So that seems to be a good middle ground. We get the Mark material out there, but we also don't force everyone as a hostage to listen to my Bible study on Mark if you don't want it. But if you do want it, it's very easy to go to the Patreon page and access it from there. And the other added advantage of doing Mark at this time of history, which historians will note is the run-up to the U.S. elections, is that this is my way of dealing with the elections. This is my politics. I am dealing with the nonsense of Trump and the vapid nature of of evangelical Christian politics that is so evident today. I'm dealing with that by doing this. I don't want to spend episodes upon episodes talking about how bad evangelicals and Republican capturing of the imagination. I don't want to spend episodes talking about how Democrats are intellectually vapid. I don't want to talk about the Labour Party and the Tory Party in the UK. I don't want to talk about how everybody always gets it wrong or has been captured by nationalism or power or violence or any of those other things. So I want to talk about what is good. I want to talk about what the original people who knew Jesus thought it felt like to be around him. I want to try and talk about what it might be to imagine a way of Jesus that is not captured by all these noisy tribalisms of left and right. Trump. Biden and the rest. So this is my way of fighting bad ideas with good ideas. Looking at the Gospel of Mark, spending time with the author and perfecter of our faith, spending time with the person of Jesus who is a lot wilder, a lot weirder, and a lot more political than perhaps you ever imagined.
Well, welcome to the first ever Bible study at the beginning of the world. I'm aware that this is a good jumping on place for some people new to tent theology. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining who I am and what it is we do here. But in the first place, we are going to go through the entire Gospel of Mark. We're going to go through it chapter by chapter, sometimes line by line. And I think it will probably take about 20, between 20 and 25 sessions. I want to do just half an hour each time. I will explain a little bit why I think it's the Bible study at the beginning of the world before I... That, though, I'm just going to tell you a bit about me. Not everybody knows who I am. My name is Stephen Backhouse. I'm a political theologian, uh, which means that I pay careful attention or particularly interested in how Christianity relates to its governments and states and nations and home cultures and social habits that it's born into. I'm interested in how Christians use power, what they do with it, how they give it away, what happens when they keep it, how do they relate to other groups that have different visions for what to do with power and what to give, how to give it away, how do Christians deal with violence, with their enemies, with their money, with their neighbours, all that kind of good stuff. So what I have done is I tend to read the New Testament not as magic book that fell from the sky, but as a series of documents and letters which were written by the people that knew Jesus or the people that knew the people that knew Jesus. And it's a window into the white-hot heat of the earliest kingdom movements and how they organized themselves. And if you pay attention to the politics of these books in the New Testament, you will see that power, money, violence, conflict resolution, social vision, how to organize oneself, these things are not peripheral to the New Testament. In fact, they are usually the engine driving each book. Conflict resolution, how to hold ourselves well, how to organize this new thing called the church, how to deal with the world, how to deal with enemies, with violence, with chaos, how to do that in an organized and peaceful way. These are central to the New Testament. So politics is not some outside interest. It's really at the heart of it, and we're going to talk about that. But of course, by politics, I don't mean party politics so much. I don't mean who you vote for every four or five years, although that is clearly part of our political action. But it's usually the least important part, I'll be honest. And the voting for your political party and all the emotional energy that gets poured into that, to my mind, just shows the utter inability of the way of Jesus to have actually captured the imagination of almost any modern Christian group I've ever seen. <laughs> There's very few that I think would uh, are doing their politics along a way that was derived from the New Testament. So we're going to look at that. And I certainly am not partisan and I also certainly am not without opinion about it. I just don't think that politics means voting for one group, vote for the red team so the blue team doesn't win, or vote for the blue team so the red team doesn't win, depending on which country you're from. I just think, if you think that is your politics, then your political imagination has withered on the vine, and there is so much more out there. So this is why I have got inspired and particularly interested in the Gospel of Mark for reasons that you will see as we go through it. But this is how I do the Gospel of Mark. I do it as a political theologian. I'm not a biblical scholar. I didn't do my degrees in biblical languages. I did all my degrees in philosophy and political philosophy and theology. And I can tell you a little bit about that later on, but we don't need to worry about that too much. But my main area of, of expertise and research and work is I have a doctorate in, in nationalism and religion. Spe specifically, I, I use the work of Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and rabble-rouser. I use his thoughts to critique and uh, analyze what happens when Christians confuse their Christianity with their patriotism or their nationalism with their religion. And nationalism is the most powerful religion in the world. It is 
demonstrably more attractive and more successful than the gospel. I don't think it's better than the gospel. I don't think it's truer than the gospel, but it is more popular. And the amount of Christians whose political imagination is wholly shaped by nationalism far exceeds Christians whose political imagination is shaped by Jesus and the way of Jesus. And I think that is, it's not alien to the work of the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to look at that. And I got attracted to the Gospel of Mark precisely for some of these reasons. I was doing my work as a political theologian, looking at the role that nations and states play in the Christian imagination. And to do that, I had to start doing my work. But you start to look at history. So how did previous Christians and generations look at their states and nations? And by doing that work as a historian, you have to keep going back and back. And eventually you come to the New Testament as the historical document of the earliest church. Well, how did those followers of Jesus relate to their states and nations? And so it's as a political theologian and historian that I really got into the New Testament I've been a Christian most of my life, and I, and I love the New Testament, but I have not seen it until the last decade or so. I had not really seen it as a, uh, as a text of community formation and social politics in quite the same way. Let's have a look at the Gospel of Mark. Now, I'm going to be reading... Um, I'm not a snob about translations, to be honest. As I said, I'm not a biblical... Uh, original language guy. Everything I've learned, I'm learning from other people. And every once in a while, I will be referring to the original Greek, and I'm always getting that from someone. I will put that into my notes, by the way, a reading list or my bibliography. And uh, we're going to do that. I'm going to set the timer. I'm going to talk for half an hour, and we're going to see how far we get. And then I'm going to stop the timer, top and tail it with a little bit of stuff like this, housekeeping. But otherwise, all right, get ready. Three, two, one, go. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's anointed. All right, let's pause. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's anointed. The first thing you got to notice here is the words in the beginning. And if you are a good Roman-occupied, Palestinian, Hebrew, Jewish man living in the first century, and you are reading this word in the beginning, right away your first thought is going to go back to Genesis. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and all was formless and void, and the Holy Spirit hovered over the darkness. Every single gospel, Mark Matthew, Luke, John, they all have some connection to Jesus and the beginning. They all spend a lot of effort putting Jesus back into the beginning of everything. John is the most obvious. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and nothing has been made without him. All things are made through him. I mean, John's linking of Jesus to creation is explicit, but the other Gospels also do it. If you think of every genealogy, always... Those long lists of genealogies always link Jesus back to Adam or the Son of God. And Mark is no different. Mark has a very short creation story, but here it is, in the beginning. And right away you're being asked to identify this story that we're hearing with that text. And uh, in the beginning, of course, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the chaos all is formless and void. The word there, the Hebrew word, is tohu wabohu, which means roiling chaos. It would be a bit like if you're ha uh, hanging over a volcano and you look down and you see all the lava and the fire and the molten rock churning. That would be tohu wabohu. This is the image, the imaginative image of creation in Genesis, is that the Holy Spirit is bringing order out of that chaos. So now we go back to Mark. In the beginning, the good news. Good news is the word euangelion, evangelical. Euangelion means good news. Everybody knows that. Every Christian knows that. And you ask any Christian, what is the good news? And they will tell you something like, 
Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus defeated death. They will tell you something like that. And if you you press them, they will probably go into some kind of description of atonement theory or the resurrection or the work on the cross. Now, I'm not going to say that stuff is not the gospel. I am going to tell you that if you were a first century Roman-occupied Palestinian Jew and you heard the word euangelion for the first time, you did not think Jesus, who died and rose again for our sins. What you heard was a Roman military word that was used to pronounce the good news of a rightful ruler. Euangelion would be the sort of word you'd use if if the king or the emperor had a son, a rightful heir. That would be Euangelion. Good news, good news, your prince has been born. Euangelion would be the word you use in a military example. So imagine if your city was encircled around by enemies and then Caesar would come and he would, he would gather his army, break the siege, and then he'd send his heralds into the city, right? And they would cry, Euangelion, Euangelion, good news. Your rightful ruler has come and broken the siege. And this is what I want to point out. When the early Christians sat down to write about what it was that it felt like to be around Jesus, the words they reached for were words like, in the beginning, and euangelion. Good news, your rightful king has broken the siege. Good news, the world is being recreated, order from chaos. These are the notes that get struck again and again in the Gospel of Mark. In the beginning, the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus the Anointed One, God's Son. Anointed one means is Messiah. And again, this is a kingship word. The the anointed one or the Messiah is God's king is another good way of translating this. Messiah is a complex word. It's a word which meaning was disputed. But it has a regal, it has a kingly, it has a, a redeeming function to it. People are looking for the Messiah, the fabled folk hero, the fabled king, the fabled ruler who's going to redeem his people from their right from their siege. Let's just think about this for a second. What has Mark done right now? First of all, who wrote Mark? <laughs> I just realized. I haven't really talked about that. Do you know, we don't really know who wrote Mark. Church tradition says it was Mark who was one of the uh, disciples, could have been one of the disciples could have been Mark who traveled with Peter and Paul sometimes on his missionary journeys. We're not sure. Church tradition has linked the the writer to the book of Mark. It's also often quite connected to the eyewitness of Peter, and we'll show some of that in a second. But we're going to keep calling the author Mark, but nowhere does it actually say, by the way, I, Mark, wrote this text. We're not being asked to believe that. We're not being asked to accept a particular named person wrote this text. It's just worth pointing that out. But the people who knew this tradition and were closest to it, they assigned the name Mark to it, so I'm happy to keep doing that. But anyway, one of the interesting things that's happened with Mark is that we think this is probably the earliest gospel. And one of the reasons we think it's the earliest gospel is because it's the shortest. It has the least detail. The other Gospels, Luke and Matthew, seem to have copied 70 to 80 something percent of Mark, word for word. It looks like Matthew and Luke, when they sat down to write their texts, they probably had a copy of Mark in front of them. And they also had some other deep material and they were putting the two together. Luke even tells you this. He says, I wasn't an eyewitness, but I sat down and gathered together what other people have written and put them into an ordered account. And it looks like Matthew is doing this as well. Matthew follows the line of Mark, follows the story, follows a lot of the verses word for word. But then it it inserts things like the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer and those kind of material. And Luke does similar things. And so the argument says, if you already had Matthew or Luke, then why would you 
need Mark? Why would you take the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer out and create a shorter version? It seems much more likely that Mark was the first gospel and that Matthew and Luke and others said, oh, this is good stuff, but there's more. There's more material. There's more to put in. And they would collate and edit their material in. So that's the way I'm going to go. I'm not going to die on that hill. There are people who have whole PhDs on arguing which comes first. So, you know, we're not going to get involved in those fights. But if Mark is the first gospel, then Mark has done something really interesting. Because Mark has just invented a genre. In the beginning, the good news, the euangelion about Jesus, God's king. Gospel, as I said, was a word that meant political good news kind of word. Now, gospel is a very useful word, but it wasn't a genre. Biographies of spiritual heroes existed. The word gospel existed. But you didn't have gospels of anybody else. What Mark has done here is he's so... He has bolted a Roman military word onto a Jewish, messianic, creative figure, and he has created a whole new genre. We only have the Gospel of Mark because Mark invented it. The Gospel is now so closely wedded to the story of Jesus that we can't even imagine it not being a Jesus-type word. It just shows you how, Mark, how successful Mark was in the work that he did in shaping our imagination, shaping our culture. This is partly why I say Mark is arguably the most influential book in the history of books. It helps set the template for the rest of the New Testament, which itself is one of the most, if not the most, influential book in the history of books. So Mark did a good job there, buddy. Anyway, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's anointed, it happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. And then Mark actually cobbles together a couple of prophecies there, but he attributes them all to Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The wilderness. The wilderness is... The place where Jesus starts. Mark wants you to start your journey in the wilderness. What's happening in AD 30, 33, whatever? What's happening in the first few decades of 2,000 years ago? Well, Palestine has been overcome by the Romans. The Romans have been invading, have, have dominated the land. And as if any situation, to think about the political situation of any country or group which has been overtaken by a foreign invader, it leads to, to division, it leads to groups fighting each other. You don't, uh, it's funny, you, you, our myth is that we, we like to think that what would happen was the group, the dominated group rises up in solidarity against the oppressor. But actually what happens is more that lots and lots of little groups splinter in disagreement of how to deal with the oppressor. This is what happens all the time in any situation where one finds a home group dominated by a foreign oppressor. Think of Monty Python and the life of Brian. Think of the uh, People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's Front. Think of all the little groups that splinter and fight each other more than they fight their common enemy. Well, this is no different in Roman-occupied Israel. Because what we have is all these different groups are, are learning how to deal with Rome. You have the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes. Think of the, So the Pharisees dealt with Rome through keeping the law. The word uh, chosen people was a synonym for true human. And here are the true humans. The Jews were being overcome and overtaken by the foreign Gentiles, the less than humans. And to preserve this, to deal with this situation, you had the Pharisees saying, we must keep our, our purity through keeping the law. It was a synagogue law-based form of resistance. The Sadducees kept their, preserved their uh, ethnic sanity through the temple. 
The Sadducees were an elite group. Some were the Pharisees, but the Sadducees were an elite group. Had a temple-based Judaism. Their imagination all revolved around that. Well, who built the temple? It was Herod, King Herod. King Herod built the temple that, that Jesus knew. King Herod, of course, was a puppet king. A Jewish, half-Jewish. In fact, he was probably not even Jewish. He had a, a Jewish cousin. He trumped up his Jewishness in order to have some legitimacy. And he was put in place by Rome to rule over the Judeans. Herod was a famously corrupt king. He was, fam he was a race traitor. He was corrupt. He was illegitimate. And he was the one that built the temple. So the temple itself was already a compromised institution. And the Sadducees had a temple-based Judaism. And it was, for them, it, colluding with Rome, colluding with Herod, was part of what it takes to keep the doors open, to keep the culture preserved. Then you had the Essenes, who dealt with Rome by running away into the desert, in hiding in fortresses, and you had the, the Zealots, they dealt with Rome by fighting Rome. But the zealots, the freedom fighter types, they didn't really fight Rome because it's hard to fight people with shields and spears and swords. So really what the zealots tended to do was fight other Jews that were seen to collaborate. So all these groups hated each other a lot. They disagreed with each other. They fought each other to death sometimes. And they were all associated, well, I guess except for the Essenes, they were all associated in some way with the centers of power, with trying to control the cities, trying to control Jerusalem, trying to control places of power. So to go into the wilderness was, in many ways, to leave behind that fight, to leave behind those options. And this is where John the Baptist comes in. Verse 4, John the Baptist was in the wilderness, calling for people to be baptized. John's baptism was one of uh, a pox on all your houses. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Herodians, Zealots. Enough of you. We don't want to have anything to do with the way that you are dealing with Rome. Your way is not good. You've gone corrupt. And John's baptism, John, the figure out in the wilderness, was the one who left behind these centers of power. He was doing his the baptism symbolized a death to all those inherited forms, inherited groups that one was born into. It was a death to those and a born again into the wilderness, into a place deliberately on the outside. John was running a prophetic ministry. The prophets of old are always from the outside speaking into the places of power and John the Baptist is no different. And John was the big religious celebrity of his day, he was the one who commanded a lot of attention, and his movement was destabilizing the region. And Mark wants you to know that Jesus started his ministry by identifying with John's baptism. John is in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized, and everyone comes. And then, of course, comes Jesus, and John says, Here is one stronger than I. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So one thing to notice, first of all, is that the New Testament has to spend a lot of energy talking about the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. Because as I said, John was the great leader of his uh, day, the great celebrity. There's a lot of attention and energy poured into showing how that transitions to Jesus, how John gives his followers to Jesus. And he does that here. One stronger than I is coming I'm not worthy to loosen the straps. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit, the agent of creation, the agent of uh, the one that is hovering over the tohu wabohu. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. When he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven split open and the Spirit, like a dove, come down on him. And there was a voice from heaven. You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you, I find happiness. At once the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him.
let's see, what do we want to talk about here? Okay, the word heaven is showing up. It's going to happen soon as well, but let's talk about heaven right now, just get started. Now, there is language here like a voice from heaven and uh, something coming down from heaven. But we, we have picked up some bad habits, moderns, us moderns, especially if you're a modern Christian or if you're a modern Western person. We picked up a bad habit that we think that heaven is a place you go to when you die. And quite frankly, that does not happen in the New Testament. You go less wrong less often in the New Testament when you realize that heaven is the word that describes where God's reign is unopposed. It's not so much a place you go to. It's more like a state. It's the state of where God is reigning unopposed, or it's where God is. Where God is acknowledged, where God is, where people say yes to God, that's heaven. It has to do with ruling. Where God rules, that we call heaven. So when your voice comes from heaven, or when, when people talk about being of heaven... It's not just a voice from up high coming down. It's more a voice out of the realm of God speaks into the realm of man. And a voice from the realm of God says, You are my son whom I dearly love. In you I find my happiness. At once the Spirit forces Jesus out into the wilderness. There's the wilderness again. And he's there for 40 days, which brings to mind the wandering in the desert, of course, of the Israelites which is what you're going to start to see. One of the motifs here is that Jesus is recreating the kingdom of Israel around him. God's chosen king is the one that's going to redeem and rescue his people. And Jesus is doing it, not as just some military ruler, definitely not. Not even as some clever speaker. Jesus actually takes great pains to to send people away. He's not trying to attract people with his words. The way Jesus is portrayed is a portrayed not just as a man who's strong or clever, but as someone who's recreating the world around him as he goes. He goes to the wilderness. He dies to the old ways of life. He's born into a new way of life. And he starts to, and the, the Holy Spirit language is being used about him. The bringing order out of chaos. The recreation. So all these 40 days in the wilderness, and later on he's going to have 12 disciples, uh, which symbolizes or calls to mind the 12 tribes. This is Jesus recreating a pattern of life around him. Let's have a look at Satan. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Satan, of course is the accuser. Now, we'll talk more about Satan later. I probably don't need to go into it too much. But since this is the first time he's shown up, it's worth paying attention. I think that the word Satan, one has to pay attention to how, again, how political Satan is. Satan is the has developed within even the, the, the Hebrew scriptures and then certainly in, into the New Testament. Who Satan is develops over time. So we all naturally just think that Satan was present in the Garden of Eden, for example. But he's really not. He's not told to be. We just have the serpent, for example. And it's only later traditions, within even our scriptures, where they start to associate the Satan or the accuser with the snake in the garden, for example. So we get a, a, a story of who Satan is develops over time. But one of the things I, I want to point out about Satan, and he becomes much more crystallized as a figure in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament. One of the things to point out about him is that he is always associated with ruling and reigning. Satan is always the the one associated with authority. He's associated with Lucifer, who was the morning star, the great star in in the heavens, who was given rule over the world, but didn't like his place and then tried to uh, assume higher than, than God. And he struck down and we can talk about all this later, but the kind of key takeaway point here is that Satan is associated always with authority, kingship, and rule. And he is even here in this wilderness temptation. Now, Mark doesn't go into it too much detail, but think of, think of how in Matthew or in Luke we get the temptations in the wilderness. They get fleshed out more, and you have, I'll just quickly go into them, you know, you have, if you turn these stones into bread, If you cast yourself off the temple, and if you bow to me, all these nations can be yours. It's just worth pointing out. 
that all three of those are, in fact, kingly temptations. Turning stone to bread, I mean, bread, how you provided for your people was how a rightful king proved that he was the rightful king, which is shown, for example, in John when, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then the crowd wants to make him king by force and he has to flee. The other thing would be uh, to throw yourself off the temple. Well, I already mentioned how King Herod built the temple. Well, one of the things one does if you are a Jewish leader is you show your legitimacy as a ruler by somehow putting your stamp on the temple. David wanted to build one. He wasn't allowed to. King Solomon did build one. Josiah rebuilds one. The idea is that you show your kingliness by your authority over the temple. And to stand at the top of a temple and throw yourself off and not be hurt is in a way showing some sort of kingly authority. And then the final temptation, if you bow to me and worship me, then all these nations will be yours. Again, the rule of the nations was Satan's to give. He's often described, Jesus describes him as the prince of this age, as the ruler of this age. Something about Satan is he's not a little red demon sitting on your shoulder tempting you to gossip and lie or lust. He's the, the one standing in front of you saying, offering a shortcut to power. Where Satan shows up again and again, it's when power is involved. Ruling and reigning is involved. And the, the temptation here is for Jesus to be take a shortcut to what is rightfully his. But he can't do it. He won't do it. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time, here comes the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your hearts and lives, and trust this good news. I'm going to stop at this one. I'm just, we're going to, a couple of minutes, we're going to stop at this, and then I'll do the the rest of the chapter in the next one. Jesus comes into Galilee, announcing the gospel. The gospel, the advent of redemption from your bondage. The the rightful king has come to release his people. Now is the time, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, heaven, not a place you go to when you die. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom where people say yes to God is now. And at hand, the connotations there are you could reach out and grab. It's at hand. It's right at hand. It's not around the corner. It's right here. The kingdom, the, the state of saying yes to God is now. You can say yes to God now. God can rule unopposed now. And all you have to do is change your hearts and lives or repent. And repent means turn again or turn away. It's a return. So remember, Jesus is not just a king starting something new. What it felt like to be around Jesus was not follow me, I'm doing something new. It's follow me, I'm doing something old. I'm so old, I was there when it began. I'm returning us back to the way it should have been. I'm returning us back to the beginning of creation. Turn again. Return. Repent means return. Return, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says kingdom of heaven because he doesn't want to say God. Mark uses kingdom of God language. God's kingdom. The state in which the forms of life are patterned after what God says. And how do we know what God says? Well, We look to Jesus, according to Mark. Mark 11. You are my son, whom I love. In you I find happiness. The story here that you're getting from Mark is going to be the story of God's rightful heir marching across the land, coming in from the outside, into the places of power, gathering people around him, who are repenting of their other forms of life, their inherited traditions, their addictions to power, their addictions to solutions to their problems. These people are going to be leaving behind their other forms of life, dying to them and being born again into the new family of Jesus. And he is going to be marching across the kingdom, 
the land, drawing his kingdom together, calling out, the kingdom is at hand, you can say yes to God now. Let's stop there. Next session, I will talk a little bit about translations and which translation I'm using, and a little bit about why I've called this the Bible study at the beginning of the world. And then we're going to go and look at the rest of Mark 1 and whatever takes us into Mark 2. Okay, friends, talk to you soon. Stay safe. Stay sane. Bye. So, I have just been going through the Gospel of Mark all by myself into a microphone, and that's not good enough. I need some friends to talk this through, and I also need a bit of pushback. Challenge me or ask questions, or if I've said something that really annoys you or pisses you off, well then, push back. Come on. We're friends. I am joined by Chris Marchand and Sean McCoy, as always, my two co-hosts and friends, and I am going to give you permission, chaps, to ask tough questions or to push back. And I know that we are friends, and so you can do whatever you want. Come on, Chris. Hit me with your worst. How did you think and how did you feel about Mark chapter 1? So, so I might have a couple of things to, to discuss with you today. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lob some things to you uh, in an American speech. It, this is like a softball lob. Um, and so oh, yeah. hopefully, it's not. hopefully this is a fast pitch and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you off guard. Uh, okay. <laughs> a knuckleball. A knuckleball, yes. A splitter. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so my first thought that came to mind is, is something I'm a little bit hesitant to say because I'm not wondering if I'm disagreeing with you, but I'm wondering if I even have concerns with Jesus. And I'm like going, oh, what, what do I even think about oh, yeah. what Jesus said? And so here's, here's my issue. The kingdom is where we say yes to God now, and it's where we meet with God now, and that can be okay. here. When we say yes, it's a place um, where God is unopposed and his rule and reign can come here. Okay. What happens is if, if we have lost hope in that, like I look around right. me and I see so many people that they're looking at society and they're thinking we are a step and a half and away from utter chaos and violence breaking out all around us. Yeah. You talk about Mr. Political theologian, the kingdom of God can be now. All I see is we're right. going to die. My, my family's, yeah. my family's in utter trouble. Our, our nation is crumbling around us. I don't yeah. see that. How do you, how do you, how do you, can you even give us any hope in this day and age? Well, except that uh, it wasn't like the world was going really great when Jesus was saying this either. I mean, it's not like he was saying it in some context of being some academic. I mean, he's he's walking around with a bunch of people living under actual violent occupation. I mean, it was even worse for the Jews than it is for anybody right now, Americans or British or whoever I'm speaking to. I mean, unless you unless you live in a country that is right now under violent occupied rule by an evil ruling empire, um, then you probably have it better than they did when Jesus was saying this stuff, right? So I would say that. I don't know if that brings hope, but I mean, it certainly doesn't. It's not that Jesus is some utopian and yeah. and then the real world comes crashing in. I mean, he's everything he's saying and doing is in a real world, which is much closer to violence and chaos and poverty than, than I dare say anybody in America or the UK or Europe is right now, probably. I think what I'm seeing, what I'm sensing, and I'm and I'm even discerning within myself if this is going on, is some people they're on the cusp of losing their faith in their yeah. nation, their country, and they don't like that. And yeah. then there's other people that they're like they're literally losing faith in God, you know, you know, as well. Like they're just like I just yeah. don't even know where I stand with God anymore. I, you know, I'm I still I I feel like personally like you know God, I'm trusting you in this moment. Um, I I pray that my family doesn't get hurt in the midst of whatever the future holds. I, I myself, I don't, I don't need to have that faith in my nation anymore. I'm okay with that. But a, yeah. a lot of people around me, they don't realize that they're in the midst of the deconstruction of their country. They haven't quite gotten there yet. <laughs> yeah. And it, it can be, you can be a, 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 an annoying utopian idealist to talk about the kingdom of God. Yes, you can be. Uh, but that, so that's the particular job that somebody like me has. I have to, 
I have to always stay rooted in the real world. But the hope would be something like, so I'm thinking of when you were just talking, Chris, it reminded me of this author that I really like named Charles Williams. Do you know who Charles Williams is? An inkling. <laughs> An inkling, friend of C.S. Lewis. You know, odd guy. I want to do a, if there's anybody out there in, uh, if there's any tent heads out there in tent theology land who want to talk with me about Charles Williams, get in touch. I'd love to have a good conversation. Uh, but Charles Williams wrote this brilliant book called Descent of the Dove, which was his history of the Christian church or history of Christianity. And he called it the, the history of the movement of the Holy Spirit. And it was his history of the church. Hmm. But one of the things he really valued was something he called the quality of disbelief. So he saw the rise in the kind of, um, I guess you call it the 19th century rationalism, the kind of post-enlightenment rationalist kind of era, the real like aggressive anti-church, anti-Christian kind of movements, Marxism, communism, or the French Revolution earlier before that. He actually said, there's something good in this. This is the quality of disbelief. There's actually something of the Holy Spirit in having your what was happening was the christians were having their monopoly on culture challenged and they weren't ab able to just impose and dominate and run an empire anymore and call it belief there was something that was coming against that form of life and it was actually it felt bad it feels really hurtful and hateful but behind it or above it all is it's actually good not to be absolutely dominant. It's good for us not to be in charge of everything. It's good to have a quality of disbelief. And uh, so that's one of the things I was, I think when Jesus is marching around doing his kingdom of God stuff, partly what he's doing is he's dislodging people's faith in their systems that they were investing all their effort into. So he's in a sense, he is the quality of disbelief. He's saying the Romans aren't going to help you. The Pharisees aren't going to help you. Your ethnic traditions aren't going to save you. Don't believe in those things. Right? So Jesus is the, he's not setting up the big dominant overarching Christian empire. He's setting up the scrappy little outsider chipping away at the people who are confident in themselves. And I don't feel very confident right now in the world. So I find comfort in that message because i feel like a scrappy little outsider because the dominant narratives do not work and they are not good and they do not help me anyway what would you chris you said there was a second you had a second thing or i do have a second thing yeah you you mentioned at some point you say i am not here to be this is this is in regards to political parties or political ideologies you say i'm not here to tell you to be go team blue and then thus be anti-team red and and you're also not the opposite oh uh, go team red and be anti-team blue so here, here's my question for you is I, i'm thinking like i don't know that people are going to believe you I, right. I think they're going to actually think that you're team leftist because you come across maybe a little bit more leftist not 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 a crazy person and, well and yeah I, that's that's good i mean okay yeah that's good that's good to say because i need to hear that because I'm not, I'm not a blue team. I'm not a red team. Um, I guess I've talked about this before in previous weeks. You did. You, you, I you think I had this question and answer a, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. right. Like, yeah, yeah. it's just that right. I don't actually believe that all sides are equally bad. That I just don't think that's true. I know that's a truism, and I know that we're all supposed to just say they're all corrupt and they're all bad. At, as if that's some sort of like excuse and let's be honest most christians take that as an excuse to then keep doubling down on their support of nationalism and and militarism and you know at, and i just look at the world and i'm like uh okay all politics is self-seeking and violent but one side seems to do it in the name of jesus <laughs> and the other side doesn't so who's worse tell me who's worse the the self-serving, sexist, racist warmongers or the self-serving, sexist, racist warmongers who are doing it in the name of Jesus. Right? Who's worse? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So that's why I'm a lot harder on the conservative imagination that's been captured. Not because I think their politics are eminently worse. It's just they're the ones right now who are in the most danger of confusing their Christianity with their politics. But, but yeah, I suppose I am sort of more, if you go less wrong, less often, put it that way. Not, not who's right and who's wrong, but like who goes less wrong, less often in terms of following the way of Jesus. Is it the people who keeps pouring more money into military funding or is it people who are trying to be pacifists? Mm-hmm. Right. And as for all the problems that pacifism has as an intellectual system, at least they're trying to do something that looks closer to the way of Jesus. So that they're going to be more on the left wing just to who they are, right? But, you know, Brad Jerzak talks about this in one of the previous episodes about, you know, about unborn children and, and, and Down syndrome babies. And he's like, I don't want to abort a Down syndrome baby. So that makes me look like a, a right winger. But I'm not a right winger. I just don't want to, you know, and I don't want to drop uh, bombs on Syrians. So that makes me look like a left winger, but I'm not a left winger. I'm, I just don't want to kill my enemies. You know, I don't want to kill unborn children and I don't want to kill my enemies. But that seems to put me on two camps of the right or the left. But that's insane. I'm not on either of those camps, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I guess that's good pushback. I need to. Yeah. You should set me a challenge to only say good things about conservative political ideology for half an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think I'm partially responding to. Anytime I say like, uh, if, if I say anything remotely to uh, I Black Lives Matter or something like that, I'm just, I've been labeled a Marxist lately. And I'm just like, I, it's, it's been a tiring season. Uh, it's tiring because so, it's dumb. It's just so dumb. Yeah. It's just so idiotic. Like it, there is no credence to it. Like there is, there's not Marxist. There are Marxists who are in the Black Lives Matter, but you are not a Marxist. For saying that and that's just so dumb and then when you press people a bit further and they can't even string together a, a definition of marxism they wouldn't recognize it when they saw it they think joe biden is a marxist i mean it's just dumb like it's just wrong there's no there's no truth in it right and so yeah it's very tiring i admit but it's very tiring not because you are somehow a secret marxist it's because you're just against utter ignorance um when I start seeing utter ignorance coming from left-wingers in the name of Jesus, then I will start getting pissed off at them as well. <laughs> so what happens, Chris, when you, what do you say when people say, oh, you're a Marxist? What do you say? You know, I've, I've begun trying to ask people to, to, instead of spending my time writing or responding with my own diatribes, just asking questions. I, I spent some time this week saying, have you looked into the history of Confederate monuments in the South in America? You know, so, somebody who thinks it's wrong to take down Confederate monuments. I said, have you looked into the history? So I'm not going to waste time so much. Yeah. On, I, I want somebody to do maybe some of the work themselves. And guess what? They don't tend to take me up on the work. Of course they so, don't. But it yeah. is what it is, right? <laughs> Do you, is, are these like Facebook, are these social media debates you're having? Are these in-person debates? Social media debates. Yeah. Do you <laughs> think social media is even possible to have a truthful conversation on social media? Uh, I think you would need to know the person really well. And then, then there's when there's some similarity and you've met in real life, then then there's some possibility of that. But but even then, though, you're having a com. I've had this with you. I've had a Facebook conversation with you, and then other people chip in. Yeah. <laughs> and so conversations I'm having with my friend yeah. are now public, and other people jump in and derail the conversation or add their bit. So maybe the whole systems. The whole system's just imploding and, and we don't really fully realize it yet, but it's sinking into the ground. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder whether you're fighting the good fight of trying to, you know, get people to think carefully while on Facebook. I don't think it's possible to think carefully while on Facebook. It's not set up that way. Isn't it? Isn't it a bit like we're going to take this boat out. Um, we're going to see how far it can glide off a mountaintop. We're just going to push it off a cliff. And we're going to try and make it glide. <laughs> and you're like, no, you're just using the wrong tool for the job. Facebook is never going to tell you the truth because it is, it can't. I wonder. I wonder whether that's true mm-hmm. to say that. I don't know. 
So I kind of feel I kind of feel like I w- I'd love to jump in here on this one because I John's think, here. I think John, yeah, John. You know, I've just been listening, trying to figure out, you know, um, so so much to say. But I would I recently had an argument with a friend of mine. I've known him since I was about five years old. He's, yeah. a, very, he's a very good friend of mine. We live across the street from each other. Um, I mean, we know each other. He was part of my faith a journey when I first started. I've known him. He's a friend of mine. And the conversation uh, started around uh, sports. I heard something about a black national anthem. I don't watch sports anymore. We used to be huge sports fans, him and I watching all that kind of stuff. And he um, and his, and been a friend of mine and I can always feel it coming. Right. Mm-hmm. I can always feel the, the, the rhetoric, you know, how oh, it's this black national anthem. They're, they're not, there's, they even have their own national anthem kind of thing and off we go. And yeah. so, and they know a lot of them know kind of where I stand. I'm kind of like, you know, I've been called a liberal and a Democrat and I've been called all these names, you know, in a somewhat, offensive, but not really way by a lot of people uh, that yeah. I know. And anyway, so we got into this and we started, you know, I started, started asking about, I started a little bit like Chris did, you know, well, you know, mass incarceration rates starting in the seventies kind of lead me to believe, and I've read this book and have you know, and then it came on Black Lives Matter. And it was just this friend of mine's like, well, they want to tear down the nuclear family. They wanted this other friend of mine was right there. There he goes, they're on the news. They said that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, tell me what it said. And while he's doing that, looking it up online, a friend and I started having a further conversation, and he basically said um, something to the effect of you know, that he would never support Black Lives Matter, and that George Soros was the devil and was evil. And yeah, yeah. All I said was, I, I don't think he's the devil. I don't think he's, and I don't think he's inherently evil. And he kind of jumped on that one, and then my friend started going here. They said it right here, and if you read the whole thing on the Black Lives Matter organizational website about what they believe around the nuclear family. Their argument is they believe in the disruption, not the not the destruction of, but the disruption of the nuclear family in a more communal. And then the, the next part of the sentence, if you keep reading it, they talk about that they feel like there's a need to, to go outside of the nuclear family into the communal family. Because if you look at the nuclear family, it's like your mom and dad taking care of the kids and no one else in the world has a right to say anything about what's going on in that house except them. So it's kind of like yeah. your your out is your or your supports your support group is your parents, and if it just doesn't go well for you, oh well, well sucks sucks to be you, right? Oh, you know. Guess guess who else marched around the country, protesting against the dominant correct value of the nuclear family? Right. So yes. so I bring. I'll I, give you a guess. Yeah. So, so I bring <laughs> we just that. Been I, talking about him. I bring that up, and I look at my go. Yeah. Wait a minute. I go. I go, bro, we, we go to church. And there's other guys that go, we go to church and we talk yeah. about community. And we there's a chapter where Jesus is saying, you know, who, who are my mother and brother? Yeah. My brothers and sisters. I'm like, and then I said, take a step back from there. And my friend's like, well, you worked, you know, because my my home life wasn't the greatest. Well, you worked up and, you, you know, you worked hard to get out of that. I'm like, yeah, but my life would have been a thousand times better with a more supportive, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> a yeah. group, a community to help you along. And as a parent, you know, my wife and I are very, involved and active and together and i would argue with you that even the nuclear family it, the odds of it working so it's a yeah. that's a huge ask that too yeah and and the, right? the you know the the gospel of mark is is you're right jesus says that he's going to say it we're going to look at it in a in a couple weeks time where jesus says who are my mother and my brothers you know and he very overtly and deliberately attacked the worship of the what we would recognize as the nuclear family he didn't have anything good to say about it and as a result the early church when they formed themselves in a new community around jesus they called themselves brothers and sisters they they used family language to describe what they were doing and they weren't of blood relatives right they were an extended community family and they used family language and i don't know This is part of where I just get frustrated because it's just so like, it's not even, uh, it's in the text, like it's like literally, it's a literal, even if you're a biblical literalist, you have to, you would have to believe that the the nuclear family is not part of the way of Jesus, right? And and I think it goes to the, I mean, just if you want to be plain Jane and talk about efficacy and just the way that it all, you know, I mean, honestly, it's kind of, it's kind of this wealth versus rich, you know, being rich in terms of the gospel. Um, you know, if yeah. I look, I look across suburbs and places where I live and I think if everybody took 10%, like really, and like put it, you know, redistribute it, would we be that, would it be bad? Like why I would live in these suburbs and it drives me a little bit crazy sometimes. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, in each home, 
one after the other, boom. There's, so there's wealth in this concentration, and yet we're separated. We don't know 99% of the people. And, you know, we're fortunate we know a lot of people, but even relative to the size of our neighborhood, we don't know the majority. Um, this would be where Chris was saying, like, you sound like a real left-winger. I think there is something to be said that the early church solution is very definitely not to make the state be the distributor of wealth, right? It's not socialism, by the way. It's not Marxism. Marxists and socialists are, are building on, on an impulse that did come from, frankly, from the early church. But, um, but the early church was not a Marxist socialist endeavor because they weren't trying to force redistribution of goods everywhere. And they weren't trying to identify a rich suburb and then give some of its money to a poor suburb, right? They were actually trying to focus. They weren't, they didn't even have the state in view, actually. They just had themselves in view. They're like, well, what are we doing as a family, an extended family that crosses tribal and ethnic lines um, and social class lines? What are we doing with our resources with each other? So they actually were kind of more concerned about being insiders, how the insiders are being treated rather than people outside who weren't proclaiming some sort of following of Jesus, right? So I guess there would be an affinity with small state or right-wing kind of politics there, actually, for sure. And that would be where you could push back, actually. And that's where you do have to push back when you come across people who, who, who immediately go, oh, look at the book of Acts, look at Jesus. Oh, there must be socialism. You're like, well, no, that's not socialism because it's, it's something else and it's smaller and more local and it looks more on the conservative end of politics, I suppose, from that point of view. So, so that's actually, we talked about, you know, unproductive conversations on social media. I actually, I had a, I had a very, a great conversation in person with an old friend uh, this week. So Sean was talking about his old friend and uh, essentially the, the talk was about this divide, this tension between uh, giving to others through socialism, through the government. And when I was, when any of my language smacked of that, actually, I was actually trying to not smack of the government uh, aiding citizens, but he, but my friend heard it that way. He heard that when, when, with his ears. And so when I switched and I said, actually, what I'm advocating for is what if the churches, very similar to, to your proposal, Sean, how can the churches bring about a radical way of living? My proposal is a bit ridiculous. Um, I think all the megachurch pastors should, uh, live on the average mean wage of, a, of an average citizen and they, sh they should they should propose all the right. the mega church pastors should band together and uh, tell the world that they're going to live off of seventy five thousand dollars a year or something like that that'd be and, great uh, what's that that'd be great yeah that'd be great and um and when i said that he was like my friend was like oh oh okay and, like it totally dismantled his defenses and he's like yes I, I i would be okay with that he said yeah. And because then in this regard, it was us as the body of Christ deciding together yeah. something, at least some kind of change, not not enforced by the government that that put him at ease in some senses. So and I would just like to see like I would just like to see Christians or followers of Jesus just slightly unclench themselves from their like rabid commitment to one and only one form of economic politics, too, because like, look, free market capitalism's got its real problems socialism has got its problems like you can you can talk about it like you can be a follower of jesus and be a socialist you can be a follower of jesus and believe in the capital markets like you don't have to just kind of grab one socialism isn't bad it's just a human system of wealth and there's a lot of really good things that live i've lived in much more socialist countries i've paid taxes in america and i've paid taxes in what Americans would call socialist countries and socialist countries are better places to live. And Americans hate to hear that, but they really are. People are happier. People pay less actually on their living. It, it is financially vi more viable. Um, it's not a bad system and I can understand there's problems with it, but it's not like a, this kind of emotional moral attachment to, to hating socialism is just what you need is that that quality of disbelief you need somehow to put some distance between a, a system of man and your following of jesus and just recognize my following i'm supposed to love my neighbor whether i live in a capitalist dominated society or a socialist dominated society my job as a follower of jesus does not change 
and I'm supposed to be open-handed with my finances, no matter whether I'm a communist or a capitalist, you know, that doesn't change. Like none of those things changes. And I'm not required. I'm not asking the state to do either of them. I'm not asking the state to, uh, to support my liberty of finances any more than I'm asking the state to control my distribution of them. Right. I don't think the state is the solution to my problems, either right or left. Amen. Listen, friends, why don't we just continue this conversation next week <laughs> and we'll, um, we'll continue this March through Mark and, uh, store up some good questions and push back at me and you can start lobbing all sorts of grenades at me and we'll see if i can dodge and dive from me bye for now to further support the show please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on social media and learn more about 10 theology at www.tenttheology.com thank you for joining us and god bless everyone